0: Episode 53, Kent Billingsley, author of the book, Entrepreneur to Millionaire.
1: Yeah, and I love how you framed it, favorite mistake. It's one of those, gosh, I can't believe I did it, but boy, did I learn from it mistake?
0: I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes, because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For links, show notes, and a chance to win a signed copy of Kent's book, go to markgraven.com mistake53. Please subscribe, rate, and review. And now, on with the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Graven. Our guest today is Kent Billingsley. He is the founder and president of the Revenue Growth Company, LLC. Um, Kent is known as America's revenue growth architect. He's an international expert who helps leaders around the world scale their growth and profitability using the resources they already have. So I'll be curious to hear more about that as we get into the episode. Um, Kent uh, has a book that was released in February called Entrepreneur to Millionaire, How to Build a Highly Profitable Fast Growth Company and Become Embarrassingly Rich Doing It. So, wow, that's... uh, where did where, the subtitle come from, Kent? And, and by the way, thank you for uh, yep. for joining us here today. That's an interesting subtitle.
1: It, it, you know, it's so interesting today for book titles and naming your products and services. You have to use keywords. You have to use words <laughs> that are going to be searchable. And entrepreneur, millionaire, those are all searchable. But the word millionaire and billionaire, they've all been hijacked and they, they kind of have some awkward tonality around them. And it's still culturally, it's like, hey, I'm a millionaire and, and, and that, I, I'm not comfortable uh, watching clients, you know, become gaudy from their success. I, I don't have a choice. I can do what they want.
0: One other thing I mentioned about the book, um, Mark Cuban, who's in The Billionaire with yeah. B category, wrote the foreword. I don't know if he would have ever considered himself embarrassingly rich, but he's, he's done very well, of course
1: and um he, he's embarrassingly rich too uh i think <laughs> early last year we flew on his we did a guy's trip on his new uh i think it's a bombardier 600 he has a, a Gulfstream 600 and um i mean it's a little embarrassing a 60 million dollar jet and, and you know the people <laughs> that are servicing that and the limo drivers and all that it's a it's a little bit uh embarrassing he is uh uh, a truly, uh, uh self-made multi-billionaire. Okay. And, uh, I've, uh, I've actually known Mark for 40 years and i if you want, I'll share a little bit of background with the forward with him if you like.
0: Sure. Sure. Go ahead.
1: Yeah. So, so we've known each other for 40 years. We went to the same college. We didn't know each other in college. We met in, in Dallas and, um, uh, I'd known about his companies that he had started at, but I was kind of caught in the corporate world. I couldn't transition over. And then he uh, asked me uh, if I could come, uh, help him with audio.net, but I would moved to Hong Kong to help uh, run Asia for EDS. And, um, when I came back from Hong Kong, I helped build out a software company. And then I was kind of retired in 2002. I'd really uh, hit all my goals and, and hit the numbers. And, um, we were enjoying some time up in his suite watching his Dallas Mavericks play basketball. It was about around 2002 late. And uh, he said, well, what are you doing now? And uh, I said, well, you know, I, I'm I'm kind of trying to give back. I'm, I'm trying to uh, work with lots of companies. I've, I've learned a lot. I've had great mentors, all that. I've been very fortunate. I had a lot of success and and I'm giving back and I'm working with a lot of companies now, entrepreneurs, CEOs, not just small companies or startups, but good size. and And I went on to say that There's a pattern and a trend that I see, Mark, that's really awkward out there, and and this was 2002 kind of tech wreck space. So there was a lot of companies wiped out, a lot of wealth wiped out. And I said, the companies that are around today are are really good at what they do. The the people are passionate. The employees are driven. I mean, everybody is just killing it because, you know, we just had this tech wreck. The problem that I'm seeing everywhere is the companies are great at what they do, but they're not great at making money at what they do they're actually terrible. And, and most of them really don't make any money at all. And and I'm going into these companies to kind of teach them and show them, here's how you create wealth. Here's This is very different than just starting, running, and growing a business. Creating wealth is how you make money without spending money. And I said, I just see this over and over in every kind of company and industry. And Mark looked at me and he said, you know, I agree with you. And then I said, as I get more case days, I don't know, I had 50, 100. I don't remember how many case studies I was building. But I said, as I get more case studies and I can validate the principles, the concepts and all that, I'd like to put it into a roadmap and kind of a book. And Mark made the uh, commitment back then. I mean, you know, what's been 18 years now. He said, I I totally agree with you. When you write the book, let me read it. And if I like it, I'll write the foreword for you. Well, the last three years, I truly committed to finishing the book. McGraw-Hill gave me a contract to write it, and I, and I got it packaged up and uh, put it all together. And then several months back, I sent it to Mark, uh, and I said, hey, do you, you want me to write the forward and you bless it, or do you want me to craft it, the talking points? He goes, oh, no, just send me the manuscript. I'll read it. He read through the manuscript, and he wrote back goes, I love it. I agree with it. Here's your forward." Uh, McGraw-Hill saw the forward, didn't touch a period, uh, didn't change a word, and it went right to the book. It's about a page and a half. And net net, he's basically saying, gosh, th- this really is a roadmap. I wish I would have had this when I started my businesses because it's more about wealth. It's more about profitability than it is just fast growth. And then uh, then he said it, it's a must-read book in the forward. And, and, and so um, I, I think that's really important for your audience because – you know, you you want to you want to find a path or a solution or a recipe that's been validated as many ways as possible. There there are a lot of uh, speakers and books and stuff out there, um, and and so you can get caught up in the experimenting and trying and testing. Oh, you know, we did this for a while. Now we're doing this. As opposed to find a path, find a recipe, find a roadmap. Make make sure it's proven, it's been tested, and then get on it and commit to it. And, and stay on it and don't look back. So that's kind of the background, of the story of, of how he was involved and in, in all that.
0: Very cool. Um, so it sounds like there are a lot of mistakes that entrepreneurs and, and business owners make. And we'll come back and, and um, touch on that and explore uh, the book. And, and again, it's the, the main title is Entrepreneur to Millionaire. Um, but, but Kent, as, as we normally do here in the podcast uh, looking back at the different things you've done, um, what would you say is your favorite mistake?
1: Yeah, and I love how you've framed it—favorite mistake. It's one of those. Gosh, I can't believe I did it, but boy, did I learn from it, mistake. Um, and and I actually write about this mistake in the book because when I when I decided to go true entrepreneur leave the corporate world, I didn't accept any jobs as president or CEO. I said, you know, I, I've got to go start my own business. I want to. Uh, start a firm helping other companies and, um, uh, applying all that I had known and all that I had learned, you know, I kind of had a, the roadmap in my mind and, and following the recipe I I'm, I'm sharing in the book. Um, I, I, I talk about the biggest mistake that I made and it was very early on. It was in the, the first few months and it's around the principle of what's called targeting. And, um, that back, you go back 20 years and even 40 years in my career, uh, targeting was predominantly centered around uh, demographics. And, and and for a business in B2B, B2C, B2G, it doesn't matter. The the whole targeting premise is who is your buyer? And how do you segment? How do you uh, uh, sub segment? Then how do you uh, stratify? I was a chief marketing officer of a a billion-dollar tech services firm. So I had teams that were doing this kind of work. So it wasn't like I was new to this concept. Um, and so I had uh, I started my business, and I had targeted where I just knew there was an absolute fundamental marketplace problem, an absolute pain point in every business. That's in the sales leadership piece. Um, at best, it's sales management, and that's just glorified deal makers, or it's a it's a redundant process police person. That's sales leadership in most organizations. And sadly, that's the Achilles heel because that's where the economic engine uh, should be full force. But it's actually held back because the uh, VPs of sales and sales management struggle. They don't understand systems thinking and uh, the principles. So I I targeted. I said, wow, I can go into any tech company because I had just had 20 years in tech. I could go into any tech company and I could I could help a VP of sales double, triple uh, their their sales revenue, their profits, their bigger, better deals, higher margins, faster, because I had been doing that inside EDS. At one point in time, uh, they had me uh, working to provide the strategy on only mega deals. That was everything above 500 million, that was average billion dollar deal. So I was responsible, I would fly around the world, I would fly in and I would lead the teams through the strategy work, the political strategy, the competitive strategy, the win strategy. I would provide a strategy work over a week or months for those particular deals. So, um, I mean, I've been trained and certified and tested. I, I was actually uh, certified the experts to go do this at one point in time. So my value proposition was so rock solid. I mean, it was just so compelling That that I got a little cloud, and I thought I'll just target uh, large companies, tech VPs. uh, It doesn't matter what tech it is, service product. Um, And I and I started calling and meeting with them. And um, you know, six months went by, a lot of meetings, a lot of phone calls, and I just wasn't getting any traction. And I started to question everything. I think every entrepreneur or anybody running a business at some point starts to question everything. Am I you know am, am I way off? What's wrong? Is it me? Is it you know they're not calling back and what's going on. And, and I I really was testing every principle and concept that I had learned and even the, the more from less in the positive way, not the negative way. And so I I called back a couple of the VPs of sales and started just asking them and saying, you know what, forget the proposal, forget the engagement. Can Can you just share with me how did our meeting go and what your thoughts and feelings were? And it took a few phone calls and some coffee sessions and all that. And it was interesting how my target audience, VPs of, tech, uh, VPs of sales for tech companies, uh, bifurcated into these two parts. And, and, and the first part were uh, those VPs of sales that were killing it. They, they were having amazing success. They were, they were on a rocket ship. Uh, they, the, the clients were coming to them. They didn't even make calls. They took orders. Um, kind of like that was in the Cisco days. You just, I remember it, it, I'm remember i going way back here, but the Cisco guys used to hang around the fax machine watching the POs come through. They, they, they didn't even have to go out and make calls. I mean, that, that, how, how fun, right, uh, for them for a while. And then that went away. Um, and then the other group of VPs of sales or my target audience uh, were struggling. They were under pressure especially in the public companies where you have to hit your number consistently and you've got that 20% compounded growth and and uh, you've got competitors all over you. Um, they were experiencing a different set of emotions um, than the other uh, half of my target group, those that were having success. And And as I continue to dig and, and listen, what I uncovered and discovered was the first group that were doing really well Um Fairly arrogant. Um, uh, in, in many cases, delusional about their competencies. Uh, they were more lucky than competent. Um, but their emotional context was, "I don't need you. Go away. You know, I, I'm, I'm I'm good enough. Uh, I'm satisfied or satiated or hey, I I just can't keep up with all the business I've got." There was just there was an arrogance level uh, there, and it's like okay. And then the second group though. Um, was uh, just the opposite. Their emotional construct, those that were struggling, those that were under the gun, those that could be fired at any point in time, uh, they were living in fear. They were living in complete desperation. They were scared of me. And, and, And they were like, well, you're coming in here to just get me fired faster. You're going to come in here and find all the mistakes I'm making. You're... You're going to come in here and you're going to be the hammer that uh, the CEO brought in to replace me. Even I heard that one one time. You're going to be my replacement. And I I just found I I just found this set of conversations so shocking because it was so opposite of my value proposition. I think a lot of your clients will experience this. What they assume and believe in their heart of hearts is their value proposition is just the opposite of how it's perceived emotionally. With the buyer. That's why so many times I call it the pregnant pipeline. We have deals in the pipeline that just sit there forever and, and we're like, wow, is that? And I hear this, oh, the prospect must be stupid. I'm saying, well, they're not stupid. There's a reason. And it might be their emotional context is um, out of alignment. And and so talking with these uh, VPs of sales that were scared of me, I said, you know, it's just the opposite. I'm, I'm in. Gonna come in here to help you. I don't want your job. I don't. I don't don't want to be a VP of sales. I don't want to report to anyone. Um, I'm just here to help, bringing my 30, 40 years of expertise. And I've built to date. I've built over a thousand sales and marketing organizations around the world, from startups to some clients have thousands of salespeople. I I can bring you phenomenal. I mean, I can just transform your world in a few meetings. And and they were like, "Well, yeah, that's all good and great." But you know, I'm just. I've just got to get this. And if I get a few more good salespeople, I just keep hearing all this swirl. And I'm like, wow. So so I step back and I'm I'm (laughs) in my study at home and I'm drinking coffee and I'm going, oh, my gosh, my target audience, which is so perfect. The demographic couldn't be, I mean, sharper. I mean, it's just crystal clear. Is there the psychographic, the emotional construct is so far off.
0: And I, and I wonder, well, I, was, I was just going to ask you, you, you can say, um, I'm not here to replace you. I'm here to help you. But if they don't know you and they're living in fear, they might not believe you, which is no bad reflection on, on you, right? I mean.
1: Well, and, that, and that's the, the point of all this. And, and my learning the mistake was how the psychographic, their, um, their emotional construct is more important than the demographic. And that's the mistake I made. And that's the mistake that's that, I mean, literally every company I walk into, I say, okay, tell me about your client. There's three components of a of a perfect client profile. Tell me about them. They say, well, what do you mean? I said, share with me their demographic. How, how do you sort and stratify, segment a particular uh, prospect? And, and they're pretty good at that. And that's because you can go on the internet, you can gather data, you can make a phone call and you can buy those things. I used to buy those things from Nielsen and DataQuest and these kinds of companies. I, you know, It's been a fortune, sometimes a million dollars on the demographic data, sorting, uh, trends and patterns uh, in markets. And so um, that's not too hard, but everybody can do it. The challenge is now the psychographics. When I say, so, Mark, tell me about the, the emotional construct of your buyer. And, and, and what are their feelings that actually are driving their decisions and actions or no actions? Because um, the, both of my groups, uh, those targeted VPs of sales, wanted no action with me. Uh, the, the first group was like, hey, leave me alone. My world is rocking. The second group is don't come in here and rock my world. I'm trying to survive. And it's that emotional construct that what I call psychographic, and I talk about it in the book and, and explain it and how you do it. Um, that's the most important thing you should look at as you're working in parallel with the demographic. You want to do both. And that that's really the premise of my book is, well, just don't do this and you're done. You've got to do these things in sequence, and you have to make them fit together. The synergy is what tells you what works. And, uh, I, and I want to add one more point. One more point, because this is absolutely so critical to any clients you have that are in the B2B space, and they are in what's considered a complex sale, multiple steps, multiple buyers, multiple decision makers, multiple emotional constructs, meaning that they could be calling on the CEO that's saying, oh, my God, we got to do this. We're going to do this. I love this. And then you've got some influencer somewhere in the organization that goes, that's not going to happen here. And and I don't feel we need to do that. Or uh, here's all the pain and problems I see going through that to get there. And, and, And this is where so many salespeople and sales teams fumble today is they don't understand the emotional construct or the emotional value proposition. They're so focused and the sales training programs are so focused on the logical value proposition, the ROI, the where do I get the payback, the IRR, internal rates of return and, and, and uh, hurdles and things like that. They're so, they're so focused on the financial side. And I and I hope companies do that work at uh, 3.6, point value propositions. But you also must put in place the emotional construct, that uh, psychographic, because it's the emotion. And I, I tell teams this all the time. I hope your audience takes this as a note. There's a reason – that the word motion is in emotion Word motion is not in thinking it's in feeling and how do they feel? And and if you want motion with your relationships and your prospects and your opportunities, and and even transitioning your clients from uh, whatever level of relationship to a higher level of relationship, it's all about the emotional construct.
0: So Kent, when you had that business and you, you had these discoveries here, you asked for feedback. Yeah. You, you probed into what was um, getting in the way of deals. What adjustment were you able to make understanding yeah. those psychographics or those emotions? What, what, what do you yeah. do then based yeah. off Absolutely. of that so,
1: understanding? Great question. So I went back to my roadmap and I said, okay, so let's start all over. What's the starting process? And it's what I call a fundamental marketplace problem. And, and there I said, wow, what's, well, then what's broken the organization? If the individual uh, doesn't see it or doesn't want it on their side. Maybe they're the wrong individual. So then I started targeting the CEO to say, um, "You know what? I can help you optimize your sales and marketing and your whole system, um, uh, and actually develop your VPs of sales so that they can not just optimize or maximize for this quarter or the next quarter, but for years." And and that's where I started to connect because there were many CEOs that were saying, you know, we're getting the fast growth and the sales is killing their numbers, but it's, but it's, but our operations is the victim of all this business because it's not all good business. And, and, and what we're finding is sales is uh, hitting their number and sub optimizing operations, support and delivery. And, and and now all of a sudden I talk about this in speeches that um, operations or delivery becomes the victim of sales success. If it's not quality success. And, and, um, so what happens is many times operations or delivery has to come back and get involved and go, that's not a good deal or that's a bad deal or stop this or whatever. The sales is over here saying, I don't care. I'm compensated and I'm rewarded for, for new deals. If they have hair on them, they're bad or, you know, we misset the client expectations that can never be met, then, you know, that's not our problem. We're off to the next deal. And and what I found is I all of a sudden instantly connected with the CEO, the business owner, even the entrepreneur that said, okay, we've we've got to get a more holistic view. We've got to get out of the silos of of its sales and then its delivery and then its uh, support and then its marketing. Uh, We've got to get in more of a holistic where we're all working together to actually optimize Because the the, and I had to spend the time to educate that I said, you know, even if your sales department is hitting all their numbers, that doesn't mean you're running an optimized organization. And I would explain that and I would show that. And, And then you could see the lights go on. And I'm saying, not only that, here's what you're leaving on the table. And then number two, and this is what the book backs up, is here's all the resources and money and time and energy you're burning to get those numbers. So you're buying your growth and you're destroying creating wealth inside your business. And all of a sudden, my business—you know—what did I pick up? Twenty-five clients going into the second year, and then I just really never looked back. Because when the VPs of sales were told we're bringing in this guy to make your world better and help the company, then then the walls came down. Then the emotional construct was okay. It, you know, he is here to help, and um, I, it was it was so interesting. It, it really painful, Mark, because it, and this is why it's such a a mistake because in my heart of hearts, I so wanted to help these VPs of sales. I was I couldn't have been more pure in my intent. I couldn't have been more uh, uh, deeper with my value proposition and my tools, but it didn't connect at all. And there are a lot of companies out there, listeners that you have, that they're experiencing this. They're saying, well, why, why aren't we connected? Why? Why aren't Clients coming to, that, uh, to us, why aren't we attracting the perfect client profile? And so much of it's around this uh, psychographic is, is not either even understood or it's not prioritized. And I'll unpack that a little bit more and stop me at any point. What I mean by prioritized is that um, there are emotional states that we all have as humans, and, um, but they're not prioritized. I mean, you can have fear and excitement at the same time. But but which one's the motivator? Which which one is the driver that's going to bring change or a decision and why? And then even more importantly is who's the most important influential person in the account if it's a complex sale, what is their emotional construct and how would they prioritize it? So when I talk to teams about psychographics, it's not that you can identify, well, they're frustrated and angry, disappointed, upset, uh, pissed off. I'm like, well, that's a great list, but what's number one? I don't know. Number one. What did you ask him?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It might depend on the day, even though, which one is number one. (laughs) I mean, like, you know, talk about complex sales. uh, People are complex and and you you touch on a lot of points that I've had an opportunity to learn about. You know, my, my background is engineering, you know, an MBA and you would think I would be really heavy on the quant side, the logical, the math, the ROI. Um, but looking at, at people, and I've had opportunities to learn working in healthcare about um, counseling and, and psychology. And the idea, um, the, the puzzling idea is that when change is logically a good thing, and part of our brain can say, well, logically, yes, I should do that, there are other parts of the brain that get in the way. We have reasons to change, we have reasons not to change. The parallel I hear from you is that people, people might say, Well, I have reasons to buy, and I also have reasons not to buy. Where's that balance at any particular time? How do you help move them yeah. to feel safe or comfortable to say, Well, I, okay, I am going to buy?
1: So, uh, and wow, we could spend a couple hours on that topic because it's so important. The first one is um, you, you may never get everyone to agree with how they feel. And, and, and that's where a big mistake today. Companies, leaders are trying to create democracies. Everybody gets a vote. That can't happen. That can't work like that. You, you can't make decisions fast enough and you may not make decisions what are best for the company. Individuals, individuals usually make decisions what's best for them. But, so that's you, you just can't have that. And I, I know people want it, but I'm saying <laughs> that's how governments should work. But that's not how companies can work. The other problem you have is you don't have to make everybody happy. You have to make the right people happy. You have to identify those individuals that really have the company first and the client first for that company and and align with them and let them deal with the others. And And I want to make this point because this is so critical in a complex sale, we can be naive, and, and and salespeople, a lot of them are just so naive, just because they haven't seen it. They haven't been on the other side. I've, I've been an executive in a large corporation where I I, I managed procurement. I I watched the uh, hundred million dollar decisions navigate through my company. I was it was involved in them, or I watched them from the side. Um, uh, the 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 challenge there is that um, these complex decisions. Uh, that go down uh, and have the emotional constructs. Uh, there there are, are groups involved, and like you say, they change. Um, and so when they're going through their processes and changing, uh, some of these people are going to lose. And, and that's a very important point, and I just tell teams this sometimes, just so it's on their radar. In almost every major decision, there will be losers. There will be people inside the company. That their world is not going to be better. Matter of fact, their world might go away. And, and I sold outsourcing services back in the uh, early 80s, and, which meant that we would come in and we would then take over, and I learned not to use that word after the second meeting, <laughs> we would take over or assume control of all um, data processing, network management in the banks. It would be check processing, ATMs. We would now be a third party responsible for all that. You don't think there'd be some disruption uh, the MIS director or the CTO—I mean that—that that was a freak out um, because they just lost their empire. There were people in there that had built their code and their programs, and they had created their career protection environments that were going to get blown up. Um, and so I—I I was walking into sometimes a hornet's nest uh, because what those people were doing were actually holding the company back, but, but it was great for them, but not for the company. And the CEO would have to come down and say we're making a major strategic change. We are now going to outsource to a third party. Uh, all, uh, our 80, 90% of all operations will now be assumed under control of this operation. The data centers will run around the world. They'll no longer be located on site or slightly remote site. So I learned early and often that uh, there would always be people that would consider them victims or be losers, or they would not come out on the good side of this decision. And you had to learn how to manage that inside that and and deal with that emotional uh uh construct now our our, one of the things that eds did really well we were masters at the transition masters at finding people's homes finding people jobs finding people career paths actually giving them better career paths because they had more opportunities in larger companies than they did in small ones but my, my point to the listeners. Is You have to understand, and and, um, sometimes in uh, simple sales, transaction sales, that can happen too, but always in complex sales, there will be losers. There will be people that will become victims or their world won't be better. And you need to factor that in. You need to look at that emotional state. So let me share with the audience. So how do you do that? Well, the way you do that is your internal folks, your coaches and your sponsors, you talk through this with them. And it probably wasn't until I don't know how many major contracts I had put together to where I made that part of my agenda was somewhere in the process. I'd say, Mark, we need to have a meeting about some people and their feelings and where they're going to be on the other side of this decision. And I learned to discover that was one of the most important meetings I ever had because the, the the marks of the world would say thank you you you're, you're the first company or vendor that's really cared about our people and 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 trying to work with us to make this as good as it can be for everybody so um even though i knew that back then when i started my own company on the and we did it on the operations delivery side i lost that on the sales and marketing when i was starting my business I didn't put the emotional construct in, in context of of where it needed to be. And and man, my first year of business was really, really ugly. So I guess that'd be my favorite mistake.
0: Yeah. Well <laughs> I, I mean, but, but Kent, what I hear you saying is, you know, from from the different examples, kind of large and small, there's this repeated pattern of you learning <laughs> from those mistakes, whether it was using the phrase take over or the other things. I mean, and that's what this podcast is all about. It's embracing the learning that comes from these mistakes. I, I appreciate you sharing and, and, and telling us those stories.
1: You've touched on something. It's a whole chapter of my book and it's called blueprinting optimization because I've got some corporate people that want to hear the corporate words. But uh, in reality, <laughs> so what's it mean? <laughs> yeah. And in, in, in street language, it's, it's continuous transformation, continuous change, continuous adaption. Uh, to what's out there and how things are different. And, and, you know, we're, I don't know, we're pre-COVID or in the eye of the storm, You know, depending on what news site or feed you read that day. Um, all I can say is things are different and they're not going to go back and they're not going to, we're not going to uh, re-norm or whatever. Things are different. And a lot of fundamental marketplace problems that companies were solving are gone, are changed, or must be satisfied in a completely different way Today. And so uh, you bring up a great point. I call it um, uh, accelerated learning, feedback learning. Um, that has to become a core competency inside your business. And uh, I, I spend another chapter talking about how uh, when you start this roadmap at some point in your roadmap, you've got to go back to the beginning again and retest it. And I recommend every year you go back and start with the FMB and say, what is the fundamental marketplace problem? Does it still exist? Has it changed? Have the competitors satiated it? Do we need to readjust our model? Uh, I've had to readjust my models. The the event speaking business got totally wiped out. I can look at my calendar now and I see live events coming up in the next uh, month, uh, even without Texas fully opening, but they are this week. um, We're having live events. I've I've done two or three now and I've got uh, several scheduled uh, that's that, that's so exciting, but they're different. They're limited. Some people won't show because they're still nervous. The world changed. And, you know, we, we, we've got to adapt our models. I'm really fearful, Mark, that one of the great mistakes that companies are making, and I'm seeing it uh, dealing with clients, is they're just waiting for things to go back to normal. They're just holding on um, and, and, and just knowing that, okay, well, business is coming back. We can just Go back to what we were doing and just doing it the same way. It's a little tougher. Uh, Have to spend a little more money. I mean, I I just hear this and I'm like that that you didn't learn. Uh, You got beaten up, but you didn't learn from COVID. You've got to readjust, maybe completely transform your model. Uh, I'm getting a lot of feedback that uh, a favorite chapter for people is when I talk about multiple revenue streams, that that you've got to have this Goldilocks of revenue streams today because that one or two that you had, that one product or service uh, and way you, the way you were making money off of it, you need to find other ways to make money off of it. What I'm not saying is you need more products and services. What I'm saying is you need to find more ways to make money off that same product and service and additional revenue streams. To protect yourself, I use a lot of examples about restaurants just because we all eat at them. Those that had one revenue stream walk-in traffic, um, either the traffic left or um, the, uh, the the government shut them down. I'll share with you another real quick story. One of my friends and uh, a, a guy that uh, uh, we've almost worked together a couple of times, his business was so on fire. He, he owned uh, a, a, quite a chain of these um uh, movie studios that where you would go in and eat and, and have drinks and all that. And his business was on fire. He was in the, I think it was worth a few hundred million COVID hits. He, he takes a double whammy. Uh, there's just no audience and no product. And, and they had to declare bankruptcy. I mean, just, just overnight. I remember talking to him, you know, a year and a half ago and he's like, Ken, I got to get you in here. We got to work on the corporate sales side where our, 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 our venues are doing great, but we, we just struggle with the corporate B2B. See, his B2C model was rocking. The B2B model was stuck because it's a complex sale versus a simple sale. And, and I remember talking to him, and I'm like, at some point in time, we'll work it out. I'll get the bandwidth. We, we can work together. And then, boom, he just absolutely got blown up. And um, Because that, two two dramatic uh, tsunamis, the no, the no clients and no product. The, the movie studios couldn't make movies, so they couldn't send anything. And 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 so now you know you got to go back and look at your model. And say okay, what? How do we do this differently? Well, they instantly stream. They do other things today uh, to do that. And you can have home watching parties. I mean, there's all kinds of ways. So I I really hope and your listeners, I hope they don't just go back to the way things were and just accept less business or smaller business. I want them to go back and say, you know what? How do we readdress the fundamental marketplace problem if it is still the same, which it rarely is. How do we address it differently to start to create wealth and optimize the money we make?
0: So, um, final question, you know, Kent, you mentioned EDS, yes. and you, when you joined the company, uh, in, in a way, maybe it was, you know, at, at the peak of Ross Perot. You know, I really, you know, uh, admired him. He, he was one of a kind um, as an outside. Observer And part of my perspective was growing up around Detroit when he um, was on the board of General Motors and um, famously butted heads. And I think the company was far worse off uh, for, for having cast him aside. Um, I want to hear your perspectives on EDS and Ross Perot.
1: Yeah, so I had moved to Dallas in the '80s. That's when I met uh, Mark Cube, and and uh, I was uh, I was brought to Dallas by a division of PepsiCo, Frito Lay, and I was in their management training program, and I was working through the ranks, and just a great company, tremendous product. I mean, who doesn't like Doritos or Lay's or Fritos? I mean, come on. And um, I kept hearing these stories about this little squeaky guy who runs this company over on Forest Lane, and and he really secretive what they do, but they do these government contracts, and and I heard this concept of Information processing services, and and I couldn't swallow that in one gulp, and I had to chew on that and ask my friends, what is that? What does it do? And no one really knew. And so I started researching the company, and I'd listen to him speak, or he'd be on the news, Ross Perot. And, and I just got this feeling inside and, and maybe this is a definition of leadership, but I said, I have, I have to work for this guy. I I have to be part of his company. I called them and I told them basically I got the HR department or I don't remember where I landed, but I said, um, my name is Kent Billingsley and I, I have to come work for you. And, and <laughs>
0: What were their psychographics about that? No.
1: <laughs> yeah, and they, and they asked me about my background. They go, you're not a fit. And I go, well, I've heard you've got some kind of training program or something in marketing development, or I know you've got SE development. I don't want to be an SE, but you've got marketing development. I have a marketing degree, and I and I came in from every angle, and I had to go through a series <laughs> of interviews and team okay. interviews, and I kept hearing no everywhere I went, and and I finally they let me in. Oh my gosh! I, <laughs> and, okay. um, and
0: they're
1: they're and I had to go through 13 months of development. Before I could make a sales call. Now I came over as a marketing a sales director, and I still had to go through 13 months of the development program: their marketing, sales, negotiating, dining school, dressing school, everything to learn how to sell multi multi million dollar uh, agreements and 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 services agreements, not product. And so uh, I was so on board and. My first six months were a disaster. I couldn't spell DP. I didn't know what we did. And and uh, at the end of graduation, we had seven days of testing and role playing, scored role playing to fire you. It was it was like an apprentice. That every month, several people in the class got fired. I was in class eight, and I I, I worked day and night and weekends. I read. I bought every book on information processing. And the eighth week, the seven days, I actually scored the highest number ever in all eight programs. For that program, and and it was just because I I I loved Ross Perot so much, and every meeting I could be in a meeting with Ross Perot, I could hear him speak to a group. I was the first one there. I sat in the front row. the 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 He's the greatest leader I've ever known, I've ever heard, I've ever met, and he made it all about the people. He made it all about the client. There were contracts they lost a fortune on, but he said it doesn't matter. It's if the client's happy, well, that that's the way it'll be. I mean, just. Things you wouldn't do. It's kind of like uh, Southwest Airlines, same kind of thing. You just, you know, you make it right, you make it fun, and then you make money. And um, Ross Perot, when he died last year, I wrote a a blog about my experience meeting him the first time. And I remember calling him uh, Mr. Perot, and he said, now, Ken, I'm I'm not Mr. Perot. If you're going to call on CEOs and, and big companies, you call them by their first name. I'm Ross. You got that, Kent? I said, yes, sir. <laughs> and then he kind he he of shook his head. And not that I was in the military, but I was trying to show respect. He goes, call me Ross. And then he walked away. And I, I just stood there in the hallway and I was frozen like, okay, did I did I just get everything that he just gave me? Because I'm not sure I did yet. You know, I'm 25 years old, 26 years old, just trying to absorb it. But What a great man. What a tremendous man. We could all... We could all learn leadership concepts and principles from great men like that. Yeah.
0: So it sounds like it was not a mistake for you to uh, to find your way in the door and to do that. That's
1: yeah, great. and it's funny. It's funny because at that time, uh, Mark Cuban, he was he's like, man, you need to you know get in a small company, you need to be an entrepreneur, you need to do all this. I said, I, I love all that, Mark, but uh, you know, I don't know how much money's in that. I want to get into big companies where I can learn. I, I want to get into in environments where, I mean, they they paid for thirteen months of development, a hyper yeah, PhD, and yeah. sales and marketing. I mean, they paid for all that, and then they and then the the great thing about big companies and you know if your audience is in a big company or not, you can learn everywhere. But in the big company, you, you just keep raising your hand, finding problems, and say I'll find a way to solve them. You'll you'll just rise up to the top, and, and I talk about that in the book and one of the blogs coming out is. Today, every, on, every employee must, you don't need to be an entrepreneur. You don't need to go off and start a business. You can stay in your business, be entrepreneurial, and, and, and rise as fast as you want or have an amazing career because we all need everyone in business to be more entrepreneurial. And just one, I'll give you one uh, definition or one characteristic, not passionate, driven, all that kind of stuff. That's everybody's like that. And if you're in business, uh, you've got to be a creative problem solver. Not a problem solver, but a creative problem solver. And what I mean by that is the ability to solve complex problems without spending money and without hiring or adding bodies to solve it. Now, wouldn't that make a darn good politician?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, Ross tried and um, yeah, yeah, he he gave a good run at that. Um, Kent, thank you uh, so much. Uh, our, Our guest here today has been Kent Billingsley. Um, his website, if you want to go find him and his company, is revenuegrowthcompany.com. The book, again, available now uh, via McGraw-Hill, is Entrepreneur to Millionaire, How to Build a Highly Profitable, Fast Growth Company and Become Embarrassingly Rich Doing It. So, Kent, thank you so much for sharing with us today. It's really great to hear your stories and and your reflections, and
1: uh, I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Mark. And I hope they uh, get the book and learn the roadmap and get it in, in their business. And create wealth. Yeah, i
0: encourage people to check that out. I will link um, to all of this in the show notes. I'll link to the blog post that you wrote
1: um, about Ross
0: Perot. Um, And I'm going to add here at the end, um, Kent was very gracious to me, uh, even in light of mistakes I made along the way. So in one email back and forth, I called him Ken instead of Kent. Um, That's a mistake that should never happen with somebody's name. I'm going to blame autocorrect because there's a Ken I work with a lot, and then um, you know I was about five minutes late um, to our our pre-call, um, so uh, thanks for thanks for your graciousness about that, Kent. Not my favorite mistakes, but some of my most recent, and um, I appreciate you hanging didn't in.
1: Didn't bother me. You. I didn't say a thing.
0: Well, <laughs> <laughs> like I said you were very gracious about it, so thank you. Um, I'm going to learn from that and try to prevent those mistakes, as uh, as you talked about, and our listeners aim to do. So, Kent, again, thank you. Thank you so much.
1: You're more than welcome, Mark. I really enjoyed it.
0: Again, I'd like to really thank our guest, Kent Billingsley, for being here today and sharing so much with us. Again, if you want to enter to win a signed copy of his book, you can do so. You can find links and show notes and more at markgraben.com slash mistake53. Thanks for subscribing if you've already done so. Please rate and review us if you have the chance on your favorite app. And I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes and how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they've started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work, and they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, podcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.